Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Prevail. C'est Geneva programme pro politico. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organisado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brotbu za demokratiu. Y ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión, Greg Oliar, this is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. We've got a great show. The author of What's the Matter with Delaware, a new book, How Weitzman is Here. He's the executive director for Intellectual Capital at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, and he's the editor-in-chief of Chicago Booth Review. Used to write for the Financial Times. This was a really fun, interesting conversation about Delaware and all this, like, dirty shit that goes on in Delaware. We're going to get to that in a minute. On October 7th, on this podcast, on this very podcast, three weeks ago, Arthur Snell was here, and we were talking about Liz Truss, who was already a catastrophe. And Arthur told me, really, basically, the only way that Liz Truss was going to leave number 10 was if she resigned. Well, lo, it is now uh, Thursday, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the 20th, and Liz Truss has indeed resigned. Farewell to you, Liz Truss. We hardly knew ye. Uh, <laughs> less than less than two weeks uh, from me recording this and, and you know the Arthur interview. So... Uh, she's out. Now, there's rumor that uh, Boris Johnson may be back. I don't know yet who the new prime minister is going to be. Maybe by the time you listen to this, you'll know. I don't know yet. I think, and Arthur kind of floated this, and I had thought about it too, I think the key move is Hugh Grant. Okay? Just hear me out. First of all, how can he possibly be worse than Liz Truss or Boris Johnson? The answer is he can't. 
Second, he played the prime minister in Love Actually. We've already seen him in the role of prime minister. We know he can like read stuff and act prime ministerially, right? And you think to yourself, well, hey, come on. Just because a person played the head of state in a popular show or movie or, or film doesn't mean they're going to be good at it. But it's only happened one other time before. And it was Zelensky in Ukraine who played the president of Ukraine. And he turned out pretty good. So I think we should give you, Grant, a chance. I think it would be great. Get him like a guy to go along with him who has a really nice singing voice and uh, get him his tea on time. And, uh, you know, keep him away from Billy Bob Thornton. I think it's going to be it's going to be great. That's what I think we should do. In all seriousness, I don't know what's going to happen. Hey, King Charles, what are you doing, man? You're the king now. You're allowed to like do stuff, right? Stop sneering at your servant about inkwells. Get your ass off your throne and maybe like, I don't know, say something, lead something, do something. I know the queen didn't like to do that, but that doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because she liked to be quiet about things doesn't mean you have to be quiet about things. These people are trying to, like, destroy the entire economy of your country, possibly the world, and usher in this new awful phase of, basically, where Britain's just going to be this rump state at best, and probably a vassal state of the, you know, Russia, Saudi, you know, horrible fascist regimes. And um, maybe you're thinking to yourself, hey, I wouldn't mind being the leader of a fascist regime, but it's not going to happen, King Charles. What could happen is you could, like, lead the way here. Maybe your voice could be uh, useful, you know? Maybe you could do something good in your country and for your people and establish yourself as king and set a precedent at something good instead of just watching. Like, like you don't have any power at all while the entire economy collapses in your country. I don't know. Just a thought. I'm just an American nobody. What do I know? Um, but, you know, if I were the king, that's what I would do. And... Uh, if I were the king, I wouldn't dress that way, though. I probably would dress, like, the same way that I do now. I don't know. Maybe I would have, like, a slightly bigger office and a more comfortable chair. Certainly, I'd have somebody to actually mow my lawn. But, um, you know, rather than having to do it myself. I don't know. Just seems like a thing that, that Charles should do. This is an opportunity, man. I think you should seize the opportunity while you still have it. Because otherwise, you're just going to be king like it's, you're going to be like in Sunset Boulevard where you're just the king and there's like one person following you around pretending that you're still the king. And that's no fun. That's no fun. So uh, Britain, here's hoping that you find somebody better than Liz Truss and somebody better than Boris Johnson. I like to think there's people there that are, you know, more efficient and better at all this like, you know, running stuff. Um, Britain seems like a country where people, you know, can run stuff. So find somebody who can, please. Thank you. OK, Delaware. Delaware is a problem. Um, you know, I know people don't know much about Delaware. It's like this, you know, small state. It's it's the first state. It's like underneath New Jersey there on the map. It's kind of small. You drive through it on the when you're going down 95 to D.C. along the corridor. Otherwise, people don't think about it much unless they read the fine print on their credit card statements. But, oh, my goodness, Delaware has been up to some nasty, dirty, weird shit. And uh, I'm happy to have Hal on to explain it. Uh, his book is really good. It's called, again, What's the Matter with Delaware? And uh, this is a fun interview because he tells us, basically, hey, here's what's the matter with Delaware. So I'm going to stop talking. We're going to be right back with Hal Weitzman.
I'd be $966 million richer than Alex Jones. Hal Weitzman, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. I'm excited to talk to you. You've written this great book called What's the Matter with Delaware, which, uh, spoiler alert, enough to fill a book. That's kind of, <laughs> that's what we've established. I want to talk all about that because I've always been interested in Delaware just as a curiosity and now as the sort of center of all this shady financial stuff that goes on that that we don't like here in the United States. We don't like here on this podcast, but it's, you know, basically the state where our president is from. So, uh, we're going to learn more about that. Before we get into the book, I want to know more, a little more about you. Now, right now, you're the executive director for intellectual capital at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. What does that mean, intellectual capital? What is that? I don't know what that means. Yeah. Well, thank you for starting there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also I'm also adjunct associate professor of behavioral science, which is a little easier to understand. Um, it's funny. I used to say that, you know, I am the executive director for intellectual capital and people ask me what that means. And it's really very simple, Greg. It means that I I direct the school's intellectual capital and I do so in an executive manner. Oh. Um, yeah. No, I mean, what, what does it mean? It's a very University of Chicago thing. If you know anything about the University of Chicago, we uh, we care a lot here about ideas. And the idea being that there's human capital, there's social capital, you know, the, the capital that resides in individuals and in the connections between individuals. And then there's intellectual capital, which resides in the heads of people. And so any organization has intellectual capital. It's just the expertise and knowledge that um, the people in that organization have. And so my job here is to, is my day job is to kind of tap that intellectual capital um, to enhance the reputation of, of the university and more specifically of, of, of the Booth School of Business. So we do have three Nobel laureates on our faculty, so it is not a difficult job, um, but it's great fun. Okay. Now, I, I've heard of the University of Chicago. It's in Chicago, as I understand. No, I'm kidding. We all know about the oh, University yeah, of Chicago. I now, should, you wrote I should a also book. just put in a plug, <laughs> since you asked, you set this up. I, up so my, 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 uh, my real job is to is to run a, a team for that produces Chicago Booth Review, which is a, a magazine and website that and videos that are dedicated to telling the world about the latest academic research in economics and uh, behavioral science and all the all that good stuff. So um, it's Chicago Booth Review. Google it and you'll find the website. I'll put it in the show notes too. And if you have interesting people, send them my way. I like <laughs> to talk to to people who are who are studying interesting things on this podcast. Um, now, you wrote a book in 2012 called Latin Lessons, How South America Stopped Listening to the United States and Started Prospering. Now, isn't that run counter to everything that the University of Chicago's economics department says or no? Am I, I, I mean, is it Milton Friedman spitting in his grave, like hearing about this? What's, what's going on with that? Well, thank you for raising that. You're really digging into my past. Yeah, so I like to pick topics with very broad appeal in the United States, like Latin America and Delaware. You know, you can tell that I pick very mainstream <laughs> thoughts to uh, to think about. Um, being from Wales, you know, originally, that's my, I'm, I'm, I'm a little out of the mainstream anyway. Um, so, yeah, so a couple of things to say about that. One is I was not at the University of Chicago when I wrote that book. I was at the Financial Times newspaper. And I was their correspondent in in Peru and covering the Andean region, so that's why I got into okay. that into that topic. 
And it was at a time when there was a big shift to the left in uh, South America. Funnily enough, there's been in the past year or so, there's been another shift to the left um, in South America because these things are uh, pretty cyclical and they tend to mirror um, the economic, you know, what's happening in the economy. And so that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is in defense of the University of Chicago, it is not monolithic. So, yeah, there's people who still fly the flag for Milton Freeman, but there are many people who take a quite different view of uh, what's good for economies. And I think that the University of Chicago is not beyond learning. And uh, while there was a connection between the people, you know, those Chileans who studied under Freeman and then went down to Chile during the military dictatorship, um, I think that, you know, the University of Chicago has learned from some of that experience and takes maybe a more subtle view, even those who are very free market, take a more subtle view than, than you know, the Chicago boys that, that we know who went down to Chile. And I mean, well, we can we could talk more about that, but I'll tell you. I'm just, I also, I'm just teasing. One, one, yeah, I'm well, teasing. one interesting <laughs> nugget that I always thought, you know, they went down, they privatized the Chilean economy, but they never sold off the state copper company. You know, it was interesting that they, that remained in state hands. So the most valuable company in the country still remained nationalized, which I always thought was very interesting development. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'm just teasing you. Um, and I'm, I'm actually bragging a little bit that I know, that I know who Milton Friedman <laughs> is. It's not often that I get to share this, this breadth of not, that's, that's all I know about the entire thing. Um, okay. So now let's talk about the Delaware book. Like you said, you're from Wales. How did you get interested at, um, in Delaware? Um, you, you write in the book that part of it is because Wales is kind of a small part of, of, uh, the UK and Delaware is an even smaller part of the US. But what what is it that that was the the, the single thing that attracted you to the subject? Yeah, well, the, the, that's that's not really what got me interested. I think the observation there was that when I was growing up, there's a well known thing in in the UK that things are the size of whales, and usually a bad thing. The amount of Amazon rainforest that's getting chopped down, or you know, the amount of ice that's being lost off the polar ice caps, that kind of thing. And when I got to America, I found out that the rule of thumb was not Wales, but Delaware, which I always found amusing. And for those who are interested, uh, Wales is the size of four Delawares. Um, so what got me interested in Delaware was not that, uh, although that's related, the size is related, but the fact that Delaware plays this critical role in the capitalist um, system, um, it's kind of like the corporate registry of, the, the registry of corporate births, marriages, and deaths. You know, companies go there to get, started to get formed, legally speaking. They go there when they, uh, you know, the marriages part would be mergers and acquisitions um, and divorces, you know, when they split up um, and when they have disputes. And then, you know, they go there for corporate death being bankruptcy. Although, of course, most companies come back from, or many companies come back from bankruptcy. So it's not quite death, but certainly illness. So it's kind of a register of the closest things we have to register of corporate life events. And, Delaware, you know, as I said, plays this critical role in the in the system because uh, two thirds of the biggest U.S. listed companies are legally registered in Delaware. Uh, the majority of all U.S. listed companies, all companies on the New York Stock Exchange, um, most of them are incorporated in Delaware. And um, Delaware, you know, has a population of fewer than a million people, but a corporate population, number of corporations registered there is 1.6 million. Um, So Delaware is this tiny state, but it has a huge influence in in U.S. corporate uh, life. 
And uh, what that means is that most of us interact with a Delaware company multiple times a day. So not just once a day, but multiple times a day. So if you think about uh, Google and Amazon and you know Sprint and AT&T and, and T-Mobile and uh, CVS and Walgreens and all these companies that are registered in Delaware, we interact with multiple times a day. So Delaware is sort of like the corporate air that we all breathe. Um, but um, but this was never really studied outside of academic journals and other kind of scholarship, you know, or, or tax campaigners who wrote about it and said there was something fishy going on here, or transparency campaigners who said we want to know what's really going on there. So it seemed to me to be a story that hadn't been properly told. Um, and the more I dug into it, the more fascinating it became. I think you do a good job with it. And I want to make clear to everybody listening that that's curious about the book. It does not read like a a, a dull uh, academic study. This is a much more journalistic thing. There's a lot of colorful examples in there. It's, it, you know, there's humor in the, in, in the book. It, it, it's good. It's a, it's a good read, I think. And I learned a lot. One of the things I learned, okay, I'm from New Jersey. Um, and in fact, I grew up in Madison, which is uh, the end of Madison where my parents live. I could walk to where Standard Oil's headquarters was for years and years, which, as you know, uh, Rockefeller moved Standard Oil from New York to New Jersey because the tax breaks were better there and he could get away with more shit. Um, so reading your book, it, I, I I was really, really peeved and dismayed to learn that Delaware had basically uh, screwed New Jersey out of something that was ours. They just took it because uh, of Woodrow Wilson. And I think he, you know... Uh, you know, thanks, Woodrow Wilson, for nothing. No, uh, tell us a little bit about about that, because I think that, you know, apart from my own uh, personal position and 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 ability to touch that, is an interesting way to look at how this evolves. Yeah, you're right. I mean, D Delaware often holds out its competitiveness, but it didn't win this industry, this incorporation industry, because it had a better business model. It, it won it by by stealing it from. Um, elsewhere, particularly in New Jersey, where it just basically copied the laws and then was able to uh, to take advantage when New Jersey stepped back. So I'll give you a very positive history, which is with you're familiar with holding companies, right? Holding companies when one company, legally speaking, owns another company. And before that, you know, each state had its own version of companies. You couldn't have a you couldn't have a company that existed in many states. So the holding company, which is what New Jersey introduced in 1888. Um, was the first way that companies could spread across the states. And in the following decade, they kind of relaxed the rules considerably on corporate structures in New Jersey and what they could do. So this had brought a lot of these new corporations that were forming in the first part of the late 19th century and first part of the 20th century to New Jersey. So by 1911, the franchise tax, in other words, all the fees that all these companies paid to register themselves in New Jersey, accounted for about a third of New Jersey's uh, state revenue, which is not dissimilar to the situation in Delaware today. So there's other states like Delaware copied the rules that New Jersey had introduced, but they could just couldn't get any traction on the industry. And then everything changed in 1913 because there was a very interesting three-way presidential election. Taft was the president at the time. As you say, Woodrow Wilson was the Democratic nominee, and Teddy Roosevelt was the progressive candidate. And uh, Bull moose. Yeah, right. Yeah. And a big issue in that election was how to regulate corporations. 
you know, which is is still an issue now. But in those days, corporations were very new. People were scared about the power of corporations. And so as part of these debates, Teddy Roosevelt was obviously a very, what should we say, vociferous campaigner, attacked Wilson repeatedly saying, you know, he can't rein in corporations in his own home state because Wilson was governor of New Jersey. How can he rein in corporations in in the United States uh, as president? Um, And so Wilson felt under pressure and uh, New Jersey felt under pressure. In fact, both the Democratic and the Republican parties in New Jersey pledged to kind of investigate this. So Wilson got elected. When he went back home in that lame duck session, when he's got a few months in the transition, his allies in the state legislature introduced a whole raft of bills to ban holding companies and a a host of other measures to kind of clamp down on corporations. And the corporations upped and went. So um, it was because of Wilson that the whole thing left New Jersey and went to Delaware. In fact, when I was in Delaware, uh, interviewing for the book, uh, history professor at University of Delaware told me they should have a statue of Woodrow Wilson uh, down in the main square in Wilmington to thank him for all his services to Delaware. And this history is important. You know, I think history is always important, but Delaware is acutely aware of this history. It doesn't want to do anything to do what New Jersey did. It doesn't want to do anything to jeopardize this important <laughs> source of revenue. In fact, more important now than it was even for uh, New Jersey 100 years ago, because uh, Currently, if you if you take all the fees that Delaware gets from incorporation, add in associated revenue, which we can talk about if you're interested, uh, you get about 40% of Delaware's state revenues come from this business. And so uh, Delaware wants to stay as business friendly as possible. Uh, it doesn't want to lose this industry. Bear in mind that Delaware was a manufacturing, heavy manufacturing state and it's lost all of that, and it's moved heavily towards services, more heavily than the United States as a whole. And so in order to be as business-friendly as possible, Delaware wants to make it easy as possible to form a corporation. So before the end of this podcast, Greg, you and I could set up a company um, in 30 minutes, as long as we pay a little bit of an extra fee. We don't need to go to, to Delaware. We don't need any identification. And the documents don't need to have our name on them anywhere. So you know, and not to mention that the office, the Secretary of State's office stays open until midnight because they're so efficient that they want to make sure that they're available pretty much all day. So, you know, it doesn't take a big leap of imagination to think about who would like to set up an anonymous company in the middle of the night um, and not even go to Delaware and provide no documentation. It doesn't take a big leap of imagination to realize this has been used by a lot of nefarious actors and a lot of that activity I talk about in the book, narco-traffickers, arms smugglers, um, unfortunately, child sex trafficking, uh, not to mention the standard bribery, corruption, kleptocracy. So uh, this has all been enabled by Delaware and other states, but Delaware is a big player in this, Any has, has resisted any attempt to tighten up the rules and to make things more transparent. And to think, you know, New Jersey has a rest stop named for Woodrow Wilson. It's, it's it, I think it's the one closest to Delaware, though, but maybe that's appropriate. Um, that's a good answer. I want to get into the more of the nuts and bolts of the book in a minute. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Hal Weitzman. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg, start living a better life, Today, you know, I'm reading this ad about BetterHelp, but as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, I myself used BetterHelp to make myself feel better because, look, 
we're in a, an information war. That's what's happening right now. Apart from all the other challenges of life, whether it's uh, parents who are getting older or kids who are now teenagers or, or you know, just responsibilities that we have that uh, certain things that are just unheard of, you know, a generation or two ago that we all have to deal with now. And, uh, and, and while that's all happening, you've got the aftermath of the pandemic and, and new coronavirus is springing up. You've got the madman in Russia who's threatening nuclear weapons. And you've got the fascists in the United States uh, trying to overthrow democracy. And this is happening in other countries. And it's terrifying and scary and overwhelming. And, you know, it's depressing, guys. It can wear you down. I know I get worn down. I get worn down by this stuff. And... When you're in that state, it's tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode. It just is. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, you know, there's no better feeling. And a therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals no matter how big or how small. So as you know, I tried therapy. BetterHelp has sponsored my podcast. I went online. I used BetterHelp to find my therapist. And it was fantastic. It was fast. That's something that I really appreciate about it. You know, if you go, if you have re regular health insurance, you go through the network and you're trying to find somebody. Maybe you have a tip from somebody and you call and they're booked up and they don't have any availability because, you know, the mental health uh, practitioners are, you know, they're, they're, they're overloaded right now. Uh, better help. You get in right away. So 48 hours. Usually you're, you're going to see somebody. Um, which is a wonderful thing because when you feel like you're going to make the move to go to therapy, you want therapy quick. You don't want to wait. Um, so if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient. It's accessible. I mean, the app is super easy to use. It's affordable. It's entirely online. You get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey. You can switch at any time. Although the therapist I had was great. Um, I, I can't recommend it enough. If you're, you know, it, look, if we don't have our health, we don't have anything, as they say, right, in, in, the, in the Princess Bride, it's like that. If you don't have your mental health, you don't have anything, I think, right? So when you want to be a better problem solver or just get through the, <laughs> the day living in this chaotic world that we live in, therapy can get you there. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Greg today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Greg, better help start living a better life today. Okay, we're back with Hal Weitzman, author of What's the Matter with Delaware. You mentioned before the word franchise. In the first part of your book, you talk about the Delaware franchise. What do you mean by that? Is that just the, the, the collection of all these corporate fees that people have to pay? Is that what, what you mean by franchise? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's the fees and it's all the associated businesses. So just briefly... I told, we talked about bankruptcy. So when companies um, have bankruptcy issues, they go to uh, they go to Delaware, and that generates you know good revenue for the for the state and for lawyers, of course. There's uh, abandoned property, which is a fascinating area in itself. And abandoned property is if you uh, open a, uh, a let's say a share trade account and with a financial institution that is registered in Delaware. And you leave a little bit of money in there. Well, who hasn't done that? You know, like you get an extra interest payment at the end or something. You left some cash in there and there's, you know, 50 cents or something. You forgot to close out the account. Well, what happens to that 50 cents? You might wonder. Uh, or, you know, there's uh, another example would be a gift card. People love to give gift cards. They don't like giving money because it seems vulgar. So they give gift cards. 
Well, on average, people spend about 70 cents of every dollar on a gift card. So what happens to the other 30 cents? Well, if the company is registered in Delaware, that becomes, after a certain period of time, abandoned property. And that means that the state can claim it. Now, the reason that was done was to stop companies taking that money because officially it still belongs to you. Those 30 cents still belongs to you. So in some states like Washington state, for example, they have a whole unit dedicated to finding those people and giving them the money back. And uh, typically there's a website where, you know, you can go and find and type in your name and see if there's any money owing to you. And um, in Washington state, they keep that money in a separate account because it doesn't belong to the state. It, they, their view is it belongs to the right. to the person who who's who owned the account or who owned the gift card. But Delaware takes a different view. Delaware just spends that money and just assumes that it's part of its general revenues. And if people come knocking on the door, then we'll pay them. But we're not going to go and find them. We're not going to keep the money in a separate account. We're just going to add it to our slush fund. So abandoned property, which you might think, how much is on gift cards? This is a like a half a million, half a billion, excuse me, dollar a year business for Delaware. It's five, about $500 million. And um, that's for a small state like Delaware. It's a very significant um, source of, of state revenue. So there have been various legal fights to try to stop Delaware taking that money. But so far, that continues to be an important source of revenue for Delaware. Add all these sources, the entire franchise together, as I said, it adds up to 40% of Delaware's state revenues. And so that's a very significant benefit to the people of Delaware and the politicians of Delaware because they call Delaware, let me get my colors right, a red taxing state with blue spending. In other words, they spend like Democrats, but they tax like Republicans. Every politician's dream, low taxes, high spending. Um, and they've achieved that because effectively they're taking money from outside the state and funneling, funneling it towards their state revenue. So it's a really interesting business model. And it was one that's definitely benefited the people of Delaware and disproportionately, of course, benefited the lawyers who charge exorbitant fees, um, Some, many of them higher than you know, the fees that even Washington, D.C. and, and uh, New York lawyers charge. You say it's an interesting system. The, the word that I would use is vulture-like, but, you know, that's just me. And I think it's funny. I remember the last job I had in high school. I think it was at McDonald's or maybe it was CVS. One of these jobs I had, I got a check for like 85 cents. And I remember I'm like, I'm not going to ever cash this check. I'm just going to leave it here. So probably the, these fuckers in Delaware have my goddamn last McDonald's check. This is insane. Um, but that money adds up because anyone who saw Superman three or Office Space knows that the little right. the little pennies at the end of these things do add up uh, to big money. And you know, my God, the gift cards just. That's funny you mentioned Office Space because I saw a, I was walking on an underpass <laughs> yesterday and I saw a printer that someone had obviously like kicked to death. And that <laughs> I thought, oh, it must be the uh, University of Chicago Student Office uh, Office uh, Space Appreciation uh, Society. <laughs> I hope somebody got it on. That's a good Insta post there. That, that belongs on the TikTok. Um, okay, so something else that that uh, was interesting to me in your book that I did not know about Delaware was that they have the Freeport there, mm. which is, you know, there's art there. Um, I'm obsessed with the movie Tenet, which I'm trying to get my son to watch. And he refuses to watch it. And uh, Tenet, a lot of the, that movie, if you've seen it, revolves around this, this Freeport where there's art that just lives and the concept is kind of, okay, we bring it into this, this sort of nebulous gray area, almost like a, um, what do you call it when you go, an airlock, right? It's not, it's not in the United States, but it's not anywhere else. It's just in orbit. 
And therefore stuff can just stay there and live there forever. And that's how people can move this artwork around. Uh, I didn't realize that that was, that was a Delaware thing. I thought that all that stuff was in Europe. So tell us a little more. Did, did you get to visit that place or is this just, that's probably off limits? It's off limits for you and me. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure yeah. if, if you have significant funds, then you can, you can get access to it, but, <laughs> but not for mere mortals like you and me. But like you, I mean, I'm okay. fascinated by art. Um, I don't know Tenet, but um, I uh, there's a movie that I recommend if you do like art, which is um, called The Lost Leonardo. It's about the uh, the painting Salvatore Mundi, uh, which may or may not be a Leonardo, and it digs into that question. It's the most expensive painting ever sold, um, $450 million, bought by um, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. MBS, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Ours is fascinating because it's the world's biggest unregulated market. And that means that art dealers, for example, aren't required to know the identity of buyers. Uh, sales are often done using an intermediary, right? When you look at the auctions, which are streamed live nowadays, they're all on the phone. Uh, there's no actual buyers there. It's all middlemen. And the auction houses are not required to do any anti-money laundering checks, which is remarkable because the sums are huge. And this day and age, if anybody's ever tried to transfer money from one country to another, you'll know that there's significant checks and the banks are required to know who you are, where the money came from, what you're doing with it. You're required to register it with uh, the treasury and tax authorities, but not if you're buying art. <laughs> so, um, or I should say, you're not required to if you're buying art, let's put it that way. So actually there was a report a couple of years ago by Senator Tom Carper, the senator from Delaware, that... Um, prove that Russian oligarchs have used art sales to avoid uh, US sanctions. And the other interesting thing about art is even in the legitimate market, it's really dominated by these uber rich individuals uh, who buy art as an investment, not, not art to be shown. And, you know, like in the old days, yeah. if you went back a hundred years, wealthy people would buy art and then they would donate it or loan it to a museum. Nowadays you buy art, you put it in a temperature controlled facility that no one can get to it, where there's high security and no one sees it, it becomes an alternative investment like Bitcoin or uh, some kind of like gold or whatever. So it becomes a hedge, it becomes just another instrument. And uh, the effect of that is there's so many wealthy people piling into that industry that museums are priced out. So museums can't afford to buy art anymore. Um, at the top end, uh, it's only wealthy individuals. So how does Delaware fit into all this? Well, Delaware effectively enables art buyers to avoid paying taxes on art purchases in New York, which is obviously one of the world's biggest art markets. So there's a climate-controlled, high-security facility on the outskirts of Newark, Delaware, housed in a factory that once made those foam packing peanuts, you know, the little polystyrene uh, sort of worm-like yeah, things okay. that we probably all chewed on as a kid. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And as you say, it has this unusual designation. It's a free port, like a free trade zone. So art can move in and out, and it does not need to be checked by U.S. Customs. So the way it works is that there were auction houses in New York, you know, Christie's, Sotheby's, et cetera. New York has a sales tax of 9%, but to avoid, which is very significant. You know, if you're buying a $450 million uh, painting, then uh, that's a lot of money. And uh, so you could avoid $40 million by putting that, painting, but it may or may not be by Leonardo, in a truck. You take it 130 miles down the highway to Delaware, and you don't have to pay that tax because Delaware doesn't have any sales tax. So it's kind of a bit like buying from Amazon. They just deliver it to you. And so 
once it's in Delaware, you put it in this facility where it's this free trade zone. So you could move it in and out and nobody would really know. Um, but you could also put it into a trust. And uh, if you put it in a trust, you can pass it on to your heirs. They don't have to pay any tax. And so um, the, the reason why I mentioned Salvatore Mundi and the, this lost Leonardo is because having been found, supposedly, it's now lost again. Like it was purchased and it's never reappeared. You know, so we know that Mohammed bin Salman is the owner, but we don't know where he has it. So I speculated in the book, maybe it's in Delaware. I don't think it really is in Delaware, but we don't know because this whole system is completely secret and private and, and shadowy. What is the bigger point? The bigger point is this feeds into one of the biggest trends that's happened in Western democracies over the past 50 years, which is a growing inequality. And so one of the big yeah. reasons there's growing inequality is because of wheezes like this. So you, you, we end up in a country where the 25 richest Americans pay an effective federal tax uh, income tax rate of about 3.4%, much lower than the rate that you and I pay. Anyone who uses TurboTax does not pay 3.4%. And in some years, you know, the Jeff Bezoses and the Elon Musks pay no federal income tax at all, and the Donald Trumps. So Delaware is part of what, what's called euphemistically the wealth defense industry, which has basically mm. aided and encouraged the inequality, which now threatens capitalism. And, you know, and, and, and uh, publications like the Financial Times, my old newspaper, you know, never used to question the future of capitalism. And for the past 10 years, they've been doing exactly that in large measure because of the, of the inequality that, um, that the free market system has produced now threatens to uh, destroy the system itself because so many people feel disenfranchised, like they don't have a stake uh, in the system anymore. Delaware is a, it's not the cause of, but it's definitely a part of that system. You know, it's interesting, the whole art thing, and I know we're, we're it's fascinating to sort of think about the art, but it, it in a way it's emblematic of what you were just talking about, because Again, in the old days, you know, J.P. Morgan bought a lot of art in his day. Like, that's all he did. He At one point, he just went to Europe and bought shit for like two years, right? And brought it back to the United States, and it's in museums. You could see it in places and stuff like that. So I a lot of that generation of people did have some kind of civic responsibility feeling that they had to kind of, I'm going to endow this museum. The museum could be named for me or whatever, but, you know, so you have, uh, you know, the Whitney or whatever. That, that, that isn't that anymore now it's just this art is they, these pe these people are artless and they think of it in in pure black and white investment terms but the net result is there's these wonderful paintings that nobody's ever going to get to see again probably ever and for what so some asshole can be like ever so slightly more grotesquely wealthy and it just screws everybody else it screws our enjoyment of the thing. i'm sure the artists if they we're back to life now. Would be appalled at this. They would. They would just be sc screaming in 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 uh, in frustration because it's you know. But the the reality is there are more buyers than there are really great pieces of art. You know, it's like that in the coin world too. There's you know the the really really top end stuff. There's only so many pieces of this thing, and the highest end stuff is always going to sell at top dollar because there's more buyers than there are uh, you know, things to buy. It's it's basic economics. These art dealers, I'm sure, do very well. But I do think it's emblematic of the entire problem uh, with the inequality, because it's like, you know, you're taking our money. The least you could do is show us the fucking painting. You know, you're going to you're going to you, you bought it. You, you 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 screwed New York State where I live out of 40 million dollars in tax. Let us see the damn thing. Let us at least know where it is. We don't have to speculate about it in a book. Right. right. right? Um, 
I was going to ask, and this is a good, I mean, you already sort of touched on this, but what is the downside to this? Like, let's say you're just, you pick up the book. Okay. Delaware. Yeah. 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 Franchise tax, blah, blah, blah. Why should we care? What's what's why should the average American or the average citizen of any country in the world, frankly, care what Delaware is up to? Uh, well, so, I mean, there are significant costs. There's costs to you and me. Uh, we talked about one of them there, but that, that it's part of that inequality system. And I just give you one example. Um, there are a host of examples in the book about individuals um, and companies avoiding tax using Delaware structures. So why should we care about that? Because <laughs> first of all, the, the, the unfairness of you and me having to pay much higher tax than the wealthiest people. And that's, we've known, you know, even Warren Buffett has been complaining that his secretary pays more yeah. uh, higher tax rate than he does. Um, so, you know, the, there's that, there's the unfairness of it. And, you know, if you think about in terms of the other financial costs, I mean, I live in this, in Illinois. Uh, Illinois is in a terrible financial position and I'm probably going to have to, there's no federal bailout coming. So it's probably going to fall on the taxpayers of Illinois to sort that situation out. And it's partly because of the mismanagement, but it's also partly because uh, states used to depend on corporate income tax. They used to depend on companies paying the what the state asked them to pay. Now, the corporate income tax they go over the past 50 years has completely collapsed. Um, and it's partly because of tax dodges. One I talk about extensively in the book is called the Delaware loophole. It has its own tax loophole where companies can avoid paying tax in, in other states, essentially through an accounting t gimmick. I mean, there's nothing, there's no value being created. There's just revenue tax revenue being avoided so um tax avoidance which is uh, legal is very damaging to our system because it means that the general taxpayers are going to end up paying more and we all know that the wealthier pay pay a lower rates so that you know that that disenfranchises us makes us less invested in the system it's not fair so that's one um you know i think the other the other big the other big cost is there's a big democratic deficit in Delaware. So we haven't got into it yet, but the way that the rules are decided in Delaware effectively means there's no transparency and there's no oversight. So they're effectively lawyers who are the people who benefit most from the system are the ones who write the rules and then operate under the rules they've just written. And there's really no democratic oversight or accountability at all. So there is a there's a lack of transparency and that undermines the system, but there's also a national security aspect to this because if we're not verifying identity, then you know we don't know who's using those uh, corporate structures and what they're doing with with those corporate structures. And as I said at the beginning, we've we've had cases of of bribery and corruption, uh, international crime, uh, smuggling of drugs, uh, arms, and people. And, you know, that is a huge cost to society, which is enabled by yeah. this anonymity. So um, so that's another one. And there's also a cost there, a cost to our own democracy, because Delaware plays a significant role in enabling dark money to flow through our democratic system and into political campaigns, uh, which we can yeah. talk more about if you're interested. So there's a there's a cost in terms of transparency and there's a cost in terms of oversight. You know, and, and as I say, it, the, 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 the other big cost is just the activity themselves, the activities themselves, tax dodging, money laundering, 
the the dark money, the trafficking, but the kleptocracy, which takes money from some of the poorest countries in the world and, uh, you know, enables it to, to flow through legal structures in, in the West. Uh, and I include the UK, my, my uh, you know, my birth country and that, which has been a terrible facilitator of kleptocracy and sort of effectively um, steals money from the poorest people on the planet to give to uh, it's put in the hands of a few people. And then they're enablers. You know, this is a, there's a massive enabling industry, law firms principally, um, a, a, but also uh, management consult, you know, consulting firms and, and the like. So the cost is is vast. It's multidimensional. It's financial. It's a cost to our democratic system. There's a cost to governance. Uh, there's a cost to uh, the rule of law, and it, it's all really enabled by uh, the desire of Delaware to be business friendly. And the idea of being business friendly being, you know, this anonymity that we talked about at the beginning. So the costs are vast and they're not just for Americans. They're for some of the poorest people, as I say, uh, in the world and to the benefit of really a very small group of elites. If you think, I mean, art, just to go back to art for one second, that's a good example. So I was giving a talk last night to a group in Delaware and somebody said, why do we have that facility in Newark? (laughs) <laughs> what do we benefit from it? And the fact is, there's very little benefit to the state from having that Freeport facility. I mean, the guy who owns it, Fritz Dietl, who is Austrian himself. He's yeah. Austrian. Yeah. So he brought the idea from Europe. Uh, nothing against him. He's just running his business. But he he uh, pays a very small charge uh, to the state of Delaware to run that facility. New York loses that tax revenue, but Delaware doesn't really gain. You know, Delaware gets very little from it other than being the home of this expensive art that nobody can look at. Um, so the benefit just flows exclusively to the wealthy people who bought the art in the first place and are legally, but you might say unethically, avoiding paying tax. So, you know, the the cost is to the rest of us, again. It's like an amenity to a really fancy high-rise building. <laughs> in other words, it's not even like part of the package. It's just something you get if you're one of the... The other thing that it that it does, um, I, I thought of this as you were listing, and thank you for that because it, it it's, I think it's it's important to keep underscoring why this screws everybody. Um, it's a waste of brain power, you know. You've got these really smart people going into these fields to do what for society to fuck everybody over. Like it's just a waste of smart people. Like smart people should be doing other things th- than this, in, in my opinion, because what's the, what is, what is this to be gained? Like you said, what's to be gained by having that there? Nothing. It helps like a handful of people screws an overwhelming majority of people. And for what? Um, and it's interesting you brought up uh, Britain. I was going to ask you about that because it seems to me, I I, I read Oliver Bullo's mm. new book, which is called, I think it's called Butler mm. of the World. Um, and sort of goes into how uh, the British economy went into, you know, after the, in the 50s, whatever, the uh, into this this economy of of helping um, these super rich people do their thing. Um, and it struck me that Delaware and, and and that were very similar. Do you see a similarity there or? Yes, well, that's a great book you, you mentioned there. And, and the UK definitely has had that role historically. I mean, the city of London is very much is very much like Delaware in many ways. I mean, Delaware, I sort of yeah. think of as being acting less like a state and more like a financial services firm. Um, you know, what, what other state has offices open till midnight to service their clients? Um, and and I, you know, I say that with 
sort of some admiration as well. I mean, it's great that they have that efficiency. I guess what the question is, what is the cost of all that efficiency? Yes, it is similar to, to the UK. Um, I mean, maybe the UK has had some more, you know, so much dodgy stuff has happened involving the city of London that goes back to, you know, profiting from slavery and human trafficking and uh, uh, imperialism that, that would be a whole other podcast in itself. And I'm not the, I'm not, although I'm somewhat aware of it, I'm not the expert on that at all. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say they're parallels, but Delaware has plays an important part in an international system. So if you and I were part of the global elite, and by which I mean not, not the 1%, but the global 0.01%. That's really who we're talking about, you know, a relative handful of people, a few hundred thousand people who are who, who are the really uber elite. And and those people who can have both money and power, and that includes the people, you know, like Jeff Bezos and I guess people like Carlos Slim, you know, um, and MBS, you know, um, the, these are the these are the people who are kind of really benefiting from the whole system and when we talk about inequality it's really that 0.01 percent um that that benefits from it so if you're in that 0.01 percent you don't just have your money in london or just have your money in yeah. in luxembourg or just have your money in switzerland you might maybe a hundred years ago you did but nowadays it's very much a global system money flows very fast you know everything is electronic linked up um, through multiple subsidiaries, you can create corporate multiple corporate structures. There are these law firms that will happily set up facility entities for you all over the world, wherever you want. You just go and choose which locations you want. So, is Delaware the be all and end all? It is not. But is Delaware part of that international system, along with you know the Cayman Islands and Bermuda and and Luxembourg and uh, Cyprus? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know. And yeah. so it's very much, it's always been like that. And if you followed things like the Panama Papers and the Pandora Papers, you'll know how international it is. So Delaware isn't the whole story, but it's part of that international story. And uh, the cases I give in the book, many of them are US cases, but many like, you know, Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer using uh, Delaware corporations to pay off porn stars and make sure they don't sell their story to the, to the, tabloids um but it's also uh you know african dictators who want to steal money from their own population and 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 make it look legit and and that's the part that's really troubling for americans i think which is delaware and all states operate under the protection of united states law so um if a company incorporates in delaware they can say they can they can point to google and tesla and say look the biggest companies in the world are incorporated in Delaware. We're, we're as legit as they are. So it's a cover. Yeah. In fact, maybe I'll just tell you a quick story from, from a book that relates to Panama Papers. So you might remember the name Mossack Fonseca, which was the right, which is the name of the law firm whose papers were leaked. And that was the Panama Papers, based in Panama. And um, you, if you've ever seen the movie about uh, the laundromat, about, the, uh, about yeah. the Panama Papers, partly about them, uh, Antonio Banderas plays Ramon Fonseca, one half of Mossack Fonseca. So the real Ramon Fonseca uh, in the late 1980s was obviously living in Panama City and was a much younger lawyer and was helping, was sort of uh, new, relatively new to this industry. 
And an American investigative journalist went down there on the trail of Manuel Noriega's finances, which were very complicated. And he was trying to dig around and find out what was going on with the the, the strong the uh, the strong man's finances. And uh, he met Ramon Fonseca, and they had an interesting chat. And Ramon Fonseca was quite open, told him all about the business. And at the end of this conversation, this journalist said to um, Fonseca, so you help wealthy people hide their money all over the world. Where do you keep your money? And quick as a flash, Ramon Fonseca said, in Delaware, they'll never find it there. And it's sort of, you know, like of all the exotic <laughs> locations that you can think of, you know, the Cayman Islands and then and, and Bermuda, it's in Delaware. And it's the perfect cover story. You know, you might remember the scene from Wayne's World. I'm referring to a lot of movies, but uh, good. No, okay. We like so it. in Wayne's yeah. World, you might remember when they they're in the green screen and they find themselves in front of Delaware. And they they just say, "Hey, we're in Delaware." They have no association with Delaware, and that yeah, ordinariness, yeah. that that the sort of mundaneness, the kind of everywhere USA ness of Delaware, is a great strength because it enables Delaware to operate uh, in the shadows and and out of scrutiny but with all the protection of US law. And that's something that a Bermuda corporation or a Grand Cayman corporation doesn't have. So when you've seen the United States turn, uh, as has happened, you know, even uh, our former president, Barack Obama, talked when in his first election, talked about Grand Cayman and uh, how there were so many companies registered there. Well, there's a lot more companies registered in Delaware, but Delaware just flies under the radar, which is of course exactly what it wants to do. It's interesting that thank you for telling that story. I hadn't heard that. That's a good story. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was laughing more than usual because I don't know, 20 years ago, I wrote part of a song and the chorus was, I'm going to Delaware because no one will think to look for me there. And that's it. That's the Monseca <laughs> song. I didn't even know I was channeling the sky. Um, <laughs> but right. What nobody happened, thinks what happened to that song, um, Greg? I wrote half of it. My wife helped me out. And I don't know, we, we sort of half recorded it. And maybe I'll if record, I'd known I'll record that, the If I'd known that, I could have, my, my daughter made a great video to advertise the book. I could have uh, turned to you to, to help me advertise the book. Oh, I, it would it would have been good. It would have been good. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll record it and play it at the end of the uh, at the end of the day. It's better when my wife is with me. She has a much better. Voice I think you should me. do it. So, OK. All right. I, I will. Um, OK, so. Biden, you met you mentioned the whole thing with Obama. Now, President Biden is from Delaware. As you point out in the book, it's now the only thing people know about Delaware is, oh, right, the president's from there. He spent years and years in the Senate, famously. And when he was in the Senate, was, you know, not shy about advancing Delawarean interests. He was part of the, you know, the group that was responsible for uh, uh, the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Uh, so he's walked back some of this stuff, but I mean, can we, can we, is he still in the bag for Delaware? Is he, I, I feel like he's old enough now. Part of the benefit of having a president this old is that he just, he'll just, he's going to do whatever he wants now. Um, but I, I don't think that it's going to be at the very tippy top of his agenda to go after the the, the state that, uh, that made him who he is. So are you seeing any, any signs there like that 15% corporate tax around the or, or global tax that he's trying to initiate? What, what are you seeing with Biden? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because that's an example. Um, I'm not sure where we are exactly with that effort that was led by Janet Yellen. But I mean, I think that's a step in the right direction. You know, it, we, we are recognizing it's a global system and people will avoid taxes. So if we can put pressure on all the large economies to have a basic uh, tax, of course, 
um, not to point fingers, but the Republic of Ireland was one of the biggest culprits in that kind of tax, um, you know, tax of legal tax avoidance uh, system internationally. Uh, as you remember, you know, companies like Google used to be based there. You know, the uh, the fifteen percent minimum tax is a good idea. Whether it will get implemented, I don't know. Obviously, there's always an incentive for one country to break, and it's a bit like the prisoner's dilemma to break out, and then you know. Um, they will benefit presumably, but I mean, in terms of Biden and Delaware and the and what I call in the book and what people call in Delaware the Delaware way, which is essentially a kind of backroom dealing. Well, that's his style. I mean, that's that's what he's done. To, you know, that's what it takes to be a successful U.S. senator. is a lot of backroom dealing, and that's very much how business is done in Delaware and politics is done in Delaware. So Biden didn't create the system of incorporation. But he is a creature of this Delaware way system. You know, his style exemplifies the system. He's been funded by the system. And his voting record over his time in the Senate, forget about being president for a second, his voting record in the Senate reflects very much the Delaware system. So in terms of his style, Biden's known for his belief in bipartisanship and deal making. Um, That for a long time wasn't successful particularly and it's been more successful in the past six months but um you know that's sort of where he comes from and that's very much a delaware a delaware style of government you know so currently democrats are pretty powerful in delaware but even when it was more evenly split between democrats and republicans there was a lot of bipartisan government and what's good for both parties is is what's good for delaware um then in terms of biden's funding i mean he, through his 36 years in the Senate, his donors were all the big law firms that benefit from the Delaware system. And then in terms of voting, you know, and I talk about this in detail in the book, but essentially he led efforts to tighten bankruptcy rules to make it harder. For example, for people struggling with student loans to file for bankruptcy. And the reason he did that is because four of the biggest five credit card companies, the exception being American Express, are based in Delaware. And so he was at the service of the big credit card companies who didn't want to want people to be able to declare bankruptcy. Of course, that came back to bite him because he had to then funnel a lot of federal funds into uh, this controversial student loan uh, provision. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think in all sense, he's he's a creature of the system. Uh, he's been he's reflected the system um, and he's been quite sensitive to that. You know, there was a. a I tell the story about MBNA, which was the credit card company uh, that developed affinity cards. You know, like you you could have a, you know, University of Chicago credit card um, or you could have whatever, you know, Charlie Chaplin credit card or, a, you know, whatever your sports team, your anyone, whatever you were in, you could have your credit card. And they developed that that system. And um, he was. Biden was seen as such a shill for the credit card companies that um, somebody jokingly put that he was the he was the senator, you know, and they have D, meaning Democrat, and then dash, and then your state, D-E in his case. So yeah. say D dash MBNA, like he was representing MBNA. He was the senator from MBNA, and he took reacted very badly to that, was very thin-skinned about it. But, um, I mean, I think he reacted badly because there's something to it. And in in power, he's he's in, in the White House. He's talked repeatedly about Delaware being a corporate state, and how oh, proudly talked about how Delaware is the home of corporations and the, you know the business friendly state. 
and that's all accurate. Um, I can't actually believe that he's been so open about it, but uh, but he has, and uh, which is interesting at a time when corporations are not very highly regarded, and also he's a Democrat at a time when Democratic Party has swung much more to the left and is much more skeptical of corporate America. So I would say, you know, he's uh, overall, he is quite proud of of his sort of, of his record. His centrism reflects the centrism of Delaware politics. And it's, it's not a centrism born of ideology, but born of the desire to all be on the same page and not, you know, rock the boat when it comes to, um, when it comes to the franchise and, and the importance of this industry for, for Delaware's economy. Yeah. Um, I think he's doing a good job, but you know, it, it's troubling the whole Delaware association, uh, just to see what, what's going to happen aside from the, your, your book and everything else. What do you think about the student loan forgiveness thing? Cause I, I, I have no idea. I I'm, so I'm just asking, you don't have to answer if you don't want, I can, I, can I mean, I don't have a strong view. I just think that, you know, the, obviously, I mean, I'd just be restating the obvious, but the, 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 there are, there are reasons to do it because, uh, you know, student debt is out of control. Um, and yeah. I say that as someone who works in an institution where, you know, our fees are like $60,000 a year. So we're part of the problem. Um, but we're a private university and, and, uh, and that's, you know, and that's kind of where the market has taken us, I guess the, um, the obviously the the criticism of the way that the program was designed was that it ends up benefiting the middle class and uh is not it's not a anti-poverty effort but i mean to be fair to biden a lot of the policies that were passed during the pandemic were aimed specifically at at helping the poorest uh, in society and 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 some of those were were successful at doing that um you know it's it's always hard in economics because you don't have the counter you know, you don't have the the alternative narrative. What would have happened if we hadn't supported the right. economy? So, yeah, the variable. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 so we yeah right. You don't have a control. We don't we don't we don't control. we don't That's have like world. an A B yeah. test where half the economy gets no support and collapses and people starve. But we can imagine what that would be like. And it was the same if you remember back to the to the um, Great Recession with uh, with the Obama administration where they pumped a lot of money in and uh, we. You know, we we didn't know what would happen if they hadn't done that. But in, in both cases, I would say that the, a worse disaster was probably averted. So um, I think that the student loan issue should be seen as part of a bigger policy to alleviate, you know, the the burden on on the poorest and all sorts of things. Rent, you know, rent action and other things that were done that I think uh, generally have been positive and um, have kept the economy moving at a kind of a you know at a reasonable pace the problem now of course is <laughs> is inflation because when you keep the economy moving you know then you uh you people spend money and then uh if there's not enough goods then supply doesn't meet demand at, at, at a lower cost that forces prices up so that's where we are now and then of course the federal reserve is slowing the economy to deal with that so we we are not in a great place right now but uh we could be we could have been in an even worse place i think I think one of the examples of, uh, of what you're talking about, it's almost sort of like a like a how they approach it from a human's standpoint. Like I remember when when Romney was running against Obama, there was the whole General Motors, you know, was sort of on the brink of of, of declaring bankruptcy or what I can't remember the exact details. And Romney wanted to let it declare bankruptcy and do what it needed to do and let the system play out. And and Obama obviously did not. He wanted to save it and rescue it, and uh, he did. And, um, you know, I think it helped, obviously it, it paid off that they were able to repay and 
But I think the piece that Romney was missing, like probably in a strict business school sort of way, yeah, it probably is the right thing to do. They they screwed up. They should go bankrupt. And that's what happens when the, when the company fails. But it fails to take into account all of the people, the thousands of people that would be dramatic, you know, adversely affected by something like that happening. So, um, you know, it's the same thing with the student loans. Again, I don't know enough about it to know, but uh, yeah, it's too crippling. That, that it was way too expensive for that, you know, the, the generation after mine to to, to come in and, well, the, and the, accumulate these loans. The professor's approach is either is either you 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 know have the forest fire, so you let people you let people you know starve, or you forgive everything. You know, like that. You, that's the sort of professor's approach because those are both rational things to do. But the world is not like that. You know, that the, you have to deal with two things. One, as you say, is people, and the other one is politics because those people vote. So you never, you never, and that goes. Through, it's the same with, with Latin America. To go back to our early conversation, it's never that clean. So it, you know, it's never as clean as the academic thinks it should be. And what happens is we end up muddling through, and you get sort of, you know, something that nobody is really happy with. Um, but as you say, people aren't starving, so that's a good uh, outcome. I mean, it's not the, yeah. it's not optimal, but it's 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 doable. It's what we could feasible. Something in something in the middle that nobody's particularly happy with. That's how democracy right. is supposed right. to work. Right. That's right. That's, <laughs> that means it's a success. I I think we we we've forgotten. There, there's been so much dumbass infight, you know, fighting and 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 the one political party getting co-opted by fascists and stuff we've forgotten what democracy is supposed to look like to some to some degree so um okay last question uh what should we do about this like th th there are problems now with the system delaware is sort of emblematic of a larger problem that that's exacerbating income inequality historically if you go back and look at when you know, when income inequality on the Lorenz curve, when the Lorenz curve bulges too much, basically when too few people have too much money, there is always some sort of revolution. That's how the French Revolution started and 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 so on and so on historically. I don't know that that would happen now just because it happened before in the past doesn't necessarily mean it will happen now. We obviously don't want that to happen, but we also want a society where uh, not that people aren't going to be rich and everyone has the same thing, but uh, that that the 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 balance the imbalance isn't quite so pronounced. So what can we do? How can we get from where we are now to something that's a little bit more fair? Where, for example, we get to see the damn art that's in these goddamn free ports. This is a great question, and I think it's a, you know it's kind of a huge question. What do we do about inequality? And I'm not sure that I am the person <laughs> to answer. There's a lot of smart. Uh, economists and others working on that on that question. I mean, I think so. In the book, I tried to keep it quite narrow because, to be honest, Greg, I, I was a bit fed up of reading books that I really enjoyed, and then I got to that dreaded last chapter where they have the recommendations <laughs> and the recommendations are things like we need a global authority on X, and you think, well, that's never going to happen, you know, or we need massive redistribution, and you know, we need to whatever have tax of ninety percent, and this, these things to go back to the politics this is not politically feasible so i didn't want to write something that was like that i wanted to make it very specific so i'll give you some of the recommendations that i made in the book um so for example the us has belatedly got round to addressing the issue of of anonymity so there was a bill passed a couple of years ago called the corporate transparency act which is supposed to take effect next year, though it's very, very delayed, and it may be the following year when it actually happens. But it will set up for the first time a, regist a registry, federal registry of the owners of corporations in the, that operate in the United States. So that's a big step forward. Now, it's a step that takes us up to where 
the UK has been for a long time and European Union has been for a long time. But, you know, it is a significant move forward if it happens uh, according to the how the legislation is envisioned, the, the rules are still being uh, written. But there the lots of challenges with it, lots of loopholes. Um, so, for example, trusts, which well-known vehicle used by Russian oligarchs, trusts uh, are exempt. So one of the things I think is we just need to close those kinds of loopholes and make sure that if we have a registry of, of owners that we make sure that it's comprehensive. So that's one thing, because the use of corporate structures is, is a, to a Russian oligarch or to, to a wealth, uber wealthy American trying to avoid taxes or hide money. It's, it's irrelevant whether it's in a, not irrelevant, but it's, it's, a, it's of less interest whether it's in a trust or an LLC. These are just the names of vehicles have slightly different structures and tax implications but basically they're both vehicles that you can use to hide money so i think we should close those kinds of loopholes um the second thing is that this registry is only going to be visible to federal government and to law enforcement and you know they those agencies just do not have the capacity to verify tens of millions of documents um they're already overwhelmed they're underfunded so i think the obvious answer to that is that we open it up and make it public like it is in the uk um, like it is in many European countries and many other countries. And that enables journalists and, you know, uh, watchdogs organizations to dig into those data. Um, by the way, another important part, which I had, didn't realize when I wrote the book, but I've learned since is that we must make sure that the information is machine readable because a lot of, inf- a lot of forms that are filled out in America are still old fashioned paper forms that don't, aren't easy to, to, um, to search. Um, so, those things, uh, those are two proposals I have related to this registry. And then we didn't get into it, but the, the way that the rules are made in Delaware, where they're, raid, they're made by this committee of the Delaware Bar, and then they go through the state legislature in Delaware, which doesn't have the capacity or the or the will to to over, give grant proper oversight. It's just a black box, and that's not that's not right. There is no oversight to these rules, which affect the whole world, not just Delaware. They're made in tiny Delaware, but they are effectively the corporate code for the United States and for much of the world. So I, I think they, that this or this this the committee of the Delaware Bar they're no doubt the experts, and they know why these changes need to be made to the corporate code. But they should, at the very least, be called to uh, to to make representation to the legislature to explain why these changes are necessary and what they mean. And, and so we can have some, some semblance of scrutiny and not just a rubber stamp. And then the final one um, is, is related because sometimes people will say about this, this, this bar, this committee of the Delaware bar, well, it has lawyers on it from companies representing management and it has lawyers representing shareholders as if there's a kind of a balance there. And my question is, well, what about the broader interests of society? What about workers and the environment and society in general? Where, How are they represented in this black box sealed environment? So, you know, I, I, I take them at the, the, the word that they're the experts. I think they probably are. But why not invite other experts who could represent, you know, the interests of the environment and workers, for example? Because companies have been telling us for years now that they have a corporate purpose, you know, and this this... Um, Patagonia development that we've had just in the past few weeks where yeah. uh, the company has effectively been given over to become a nonprofit. That puts even more pressure on, on you know, big financial institutions, for example, to, to step up their, their game when it comes to um, corporate responsibility, however we, we define that. And it's pretty vague and woolly right now. 
but um but there is some pressure and some movement in that area and so i think it's, it would be useful to have lawyers who represent those interests to be on that committee as well and those experts may not be in delaware god god forbid they might actually bring somebody an expert from outside uh into this into this hallowed system but if I take them at their word that they want the system to be technically excellent. The best way to have technical excellence would be to have some transparency so we can all see what's going on. And transparency, you know, is not a liberal left-wing idea. Transparency would help the financial and economic system work better. It would help the democratic system work better because voters would know exactly what they were voting for and, 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 and have a better sense of who's funding campaigns. So all my goals, pretty modest, they're extensions of things that already exist, already happening. But I think that would be a there'd be a good start on the road to kind of a healthier balance between making our economic system efficient, but also transparent. That's a great. Those are great answers, and thank you for not saying like yes, we must seize the means of production, and you know, let's nationalize the copper mines in Chile or some. Well, that's, no, that's those the are, other, those that's are the other all... alternative, but that hasn't worked <laughs> out that well either. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are all those are all doable. They seem realistic. So, you know, there needs to be will and there needs to be, um, you know, people paying attention to it and people caring. So hopefully your book and your your efforts here will, will get people to pay more attention. Um, the book, again, it's called What's the Matter with Delaware? It's very good. I encourage people to buy it. Check it out. Um, now, where can we find you? You're on Twitter. Uh, well, I'm sort of on Twitter, actually, if you know, like I, I, I do do a bit of Twittering, but I'm mainly on LinkedIn, actually, because I, I, I think it's more, uh, it's more uplifting, you know, I don't want to, I, I think Twitter's, you don't like to do Twitter reminds me of scroller. like, uh, you know, high school. So, uh, I, I, uh, I follow rugby stuff on, on Twitter because I'm into my Welsh rugby and that's the best way of finding out about it. But more, more seriously, I tend to be on LinkedIn, which, cause it tends to be more uplifting. And also because I'm an academic, I, I, I connect with my students and I, I love to see the, their success and cheer them on. So I think in general, it's a more better for the, better for the uh, soul to be on LinkedIn, even if there's the occasional, you know, BS quote um i think it's uh i think it's a more uplifting environment so i try to look for the positive so that's where i would encourage people to come and uh, come and find me and i do post about the book uh there as well okay um this has been great thanks so much for taking the time again the book what's the matter with delaware how weitzman thank you so much thank for you greg me. i really enjoyed the conversation The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fawcett. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. Imagine being able to be magically whisked away to Delaware. Hi, I'm in Delaware. MSW Media.